1: Welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and today I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Dr. Amanda Lucia, who is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of California, Riverside. Um, She is uh, the author of a fascinating brand new book, White Utopias, the Religious Exoticism of Transformational Festivals. Uh, Amanda, it's really a pleasure to have you on the podcast today.
0: Thank you so much for the invitation. as a pleasure to be in this virtual space. I'm thrilled to be here.
1: Yes, it's spaces like these where we don't have to wear masks. If you're really far away, we can see your face. And if you're, you know, in the same room, no, not allowed. Um, this really, really is a fascinating book uh, for me on a number of levels. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the genesis? Like, how did you get into this field of research? Like, how did that happen for you?
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess it's maybe helpful to start with a bit about me. So I wrote my first book on Amma, or Mata Amrita Nandamai, who's a contemporary guru and very famous globally. You might know her because of her hugs. Um, but what I found, I just wrote one chapter in that book, really, about what I saw were divisions between Indians and Westerners. That's how it was kind of interpreted in that field. And it wasn't just kind of my supposition that that was happening, but then also looking at like canteen lines and um, the ways in which the community kind of divided into those two categories. And then as I moved out from that book, I saw it reproduced more frequently than I imagined in, for example, the Hare Krishnas or in TM where this kind of ethnic divide was happening as well. TM, transcendental meditation with Maharishi Mahesh right? Um, And so then when I moved to California, I started off in 2011 at UC Riverside. I randomly picked up a flyer for Bhakti Fest, and I narrate this in the book. Um, But Bhakti, of course, means devotion um, in a variety of South Asian religious forms. Um, But in this particular uh, circumstance, it meant Hindu devotion. And I thought I would go meet all of the Indian Hindus of Southern California. That's why I went. I thought that this would be a good way for me to connect with my new environment. And what I was surprised at when I went to Joshua Tree to the festival was that it was comprised mostly of white bhaktas or white devotees, uh, yoga bhaktas, kirtan musicians, uh, kirtan meaning devotional music, and that many of these people were very serious. So. It overlapped with my guru work with Amma and that there were people who were ex-Bhagwan Rajneesh devotees, ex-Siddha uh, um, Yoga te- devotees, or even current of, of a variety of forms. And then very serious postural yogis who were not only interested in the physicality of the practice, but were very much interested in the spiritual, philosophical roots of the practice um, and relating that to Indic ideas, South Asian ideas. So then I guess snowball technique um, in ethnography is where you kind of follow the people where they go. So I began interested in the festival, began to be interested in the festival space as an educational space. And I went to the partner festival, which was Shakti Fest devoted to the goddess. Um, very similar demographic, a little bit of a different angle, but largely a lot of the same players. Then uh, followed those people to, uh, I believe next was Lightning in a Bottle, um, which is a kind of more conventional, I would say transformational festival. And that is a big music festival, very interested in all kinds of um, spiritual exploration, uh, not only Indic but also Native uh, American, also um, all kinds of indigenous knowledge being transmitted and and represented in those spaces. Then uh, on the yogic side to wanderlust festivals, which happen on a kind of global circuit, um, not only in North America, but also in New Zealand, Australia, and increasingly further around the globe. And then I included, lastly, to the kind of grandfather of many of these transformational festivals, Burning Man, which created a lot of the pathways for these later iterations uh, that kind of followed in their wake.
1: So, in studying these transformational festivals and being cognizant or mindful of uh, the whiteness of these festivals, as as sort of um, evident from the title of the book, White Utopias, um, tell us about this religious exoticism that you that you explore in your book. What does that mean?
0: Well, uh, a bit on the demographics. So the, the festivals range, I guess I should articulate that. And what I found was that Burning Man currently, I think the statistics from 2017 is about 77% white. Lightning in a bottle, they don't produce demographic uh, data, but it's about the same, I would guess, from my kind of visual and interactional experiences there. Um, then when you get into people who are focusing more distinctly on South Asian religiosity or yoga, the number goes up even higher. So Wanderlust festivals, which are around maybe 90% white, to Bhakti and Shakti Fest, which were nearly about 95% white. And that stands in sharp contradistinction to the demographics of the places wherein they are held. So for example, just as a, a light comparison, California, um, which is, Draws much of the crowd from Burning Man, and and that's where Lightning in a Bottle is held, uh, a key Wanderlust is held, as well as Bhakti and Shakti are held, is only 80 or sorry 38 percent non-Hispanic white, and New York is about 33 percent non-Hispanic white. That's where the headquarters of uh, Burning Man, I mean sorry of Wanderlust is Burning Man uh, Nevada, uh, Burning Man's headquarters there is about Nevada is about 48 percent. Uh, non-Hispanic white so the numbers are quite stark and I tried to find with the book why that was the case um, and certainly one of the kind of commonplace and maybe easy answers as well these festivals are expensive so only white people go to them right but the fact is that we have tons of people of color all across the United States who are spending money on all kinds of luxury purchases and vacations who are doing things, but they're not going there. Um, And that particularly really doesn't work for South Asian Americans who are one of the wealthiest demographic groups in the nation, and they're not going there either. So I don't find that to be a very convincing um, argument. Instead, what I looked at was this notion of Uh, religious exoticism, which really at the center recognizes that these groups are locating a critique of Western modernity at the very center of their practice, that there's a very deep dissatisfaction with the status quo, with the current ways of living in Western modernity. And that had a lot of different articulations, you know, whether it was environmental eco-death or whether it was late-stage capitalism or isolation. Um, there were a lot of different ways in which that was iterated. But in many, many cases, what I found was that people were then looking to the other. They were looking toward forms of alterity as a solution, and adopting and learning about and uh, assuming the identities of alterity and other things and ideas as a self for those feelings of discontent. And that kind of exoticism, which is a co-option of the ideas and things, while simultaneously distancing from the people whose cultures created those very same ideas and things, is this uh notion of religious as that i i kind of put at the center of the book
1: and this is deeply implicated in this um fascinating phenomenon of folks who identify with uh uh, as spiritual but not religious and so could you talk about um, where that fits into your research and sort of uh, the ways in which you even expand or, or elucidate that phenomenon in our generation
0: Yeah, I think the category spiritual but not religious, of course, was made popular uh, by the census, where that was actually a category that people could answer. I think that most people, I was quite surprised, actually, in my interviews in these fields that they identified very deeply with this notion of spiritual in contradistinction to religion. In fact, there was almost like a a prevalent anti-religion sentiment, an understanding or a belief that religion had created the problem, part of the problem with Western modernity, and that it was corrupt or abusive or silencing or overly concerned with power or politics. Um, So there was a very heavy critique of religion and a simultaneous embrace of spirituality as that which is individualistic and personal and experiential and, um, deeply related to what I talk about in chapters three and four of the book, which is kind of aesthetical and mystical traditions, these paths of self-development and self-perfection that are highly related to experience.
1: Yeah. that that fascinates me on so many levels. I mean, your research is so different from my own, which is studying, um, Sanskrit narrative, you know, classical Hindu Sanskrit narratives, um, uh, sort of Puranas and, and the epics. And, and you know, one of the things I like to play with is the ways in which classical Hinduism um, crystallizes and folds in these ascetical sort of uh, inward turning, uh, independent uh, religious strands. And it's so interesting to see parallels in, in what's happening in the in the spiritual but not religious uh, circuit, but but aside from just my research and my interest in Hinduism, there's so much of my life and my encounters in various groups and, and courses and spiritual settings where I, <laughs> I had huge aha moments <laughs> about my encounters with many people over the years on spiritual paths. I've I've I've, um, uh, I've I've gone to see Emma when she's come to Toronto a number of times. I think I'll maybe speak a bit more about that uh but initially I was weary because the the strands of, of of the sangha of my traditional Indian guru, some of them were irrespective of color, some of them were more uh traditionally minded for whatever reason, and some of them were more, I'd say uh in line with this the festival circuit that you were documenting. And so one such one such participant in, in, in these Dharma talks I used to go to, she was also a student of my teacher. She was more sort of a, a festival butterfly type, shall we say. And she invited me a number of years in a row, and I, I wasn't interested because I didn't really feel, you know, that, that wasn't going to feed me as, a, as, a, as an experience. <laughs> and then she one year she goes, I'm coming down, I'm picking you up. You're going to go see Emma. I'm like, you fine. I'm going to go. I went to see Emma. I had a great experience, but I didn't notice that the, there's the, so much of what you talk about. I sort of internalized in terms of, in terms of the, the demographic around Emma, you know, uh, the, the whiteness, the, the, the sort of uh, the, the very uh, crafted sense of, what it means to be a devotee of Amma, what it means to be a Hindu, what it means to be practicing. And 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 it's so fascinating because so many of my own sort of spiritual brothers and sisters seem to be able to do that in a more integrated way as individuals. And in this context, it was clear that to me, to be an armchair ethnographer, that this was something where these individuals really needed a sense of community and identity. And it was defined in as much uh, by contrast to what they were running from, as it was to what they're running to. Maybe I've said too much, but I just couldn't help but share these, the, the the things that popped in my brain as I was reading your book.
0: No, I think that is um, spot on, and and I what I one of the things that I try to articulate in the book is that, you know, these movements, I think you were quite right to use the word crafted, um, in that they are not as spontaneous as anyone might imagine, or not as kind of uh, willy-nilly people creating their own spiritual worlds in isolation, as we might think. In fact, they have a very long history of people, particularly white people, turning away from their home culture and turning toward that of the other um, in direct correlation. I believe it's uh, Philip Jenkins who art, art argues that in direct inverse correlation to their level of satisfaction with their home country. So if their home space is something that they are deeply satisfied with, they don't turn toward native religions. Is that, That's what Jenkins is referring to. And I'm expanding that to the notion of yoga, uh, bhakti, etc. Um, and when they are more discontented with their home tradition, they do turn toward alterity. And that's something that um, another fine scholar, sociologist, Veronique altglass has talked about in her um, book from Yoga to Kabbalah. I guess the difference in or what I'm building on her work is to consider how this relates to whiteness um, in our contemporary context.
1: So um, just one quick comment in terms of, you know, when I encounter folks, whether they're they're continuing study students or, or undergrad students or private students or just, you know, the word religion in, in the West almost always means Abrahamic religion to people. And so when they say to themselves, look, I'm spiritual, but not religious, what it it often looks like to me as a scholar of religion and sort of, as I say, an armchair ethnographer, that um, the practices of the East aren't religion because they're not tied to this, you know, I believe in God, but God equals approximately Yahweh to most people. So, but I don't believe in that God. I believe in this other sense of God. And I can't, I'm, I'm continually struck by the number of people of various intellectual cultural, and spiritual stripes in the West who use the word religion to mean Abrahamic religion. You know, it's tantamount in in some way. Uh, it's a random throwaway comment. You can feel free to engage it if you'd like. I will. But, um,
0: I, I think that's spot on. Again, I feel that um, I was surprised by that. You know, in, in these fields, just how much when people said that they were um, when they were leveling a critique at of religion, oftentimes they were talking about their Christian, Catholic, and sometimes Jewish upbringings. And I shy away from the term Abrahamic in some sense because you know I, I'm not a specialist in these fields, but I've, I've heard it's fallen out of favor for a variety of reasons, but also that there's not very much Islam uh, represented here. Um, it's mostly Christian, Catholic, and Jewish backgrounds that people are leaving and turning toward what I identify as Indic and indigenous traditions. And by Indic, I mean... Uh, broadly conceived religions that emerge from India so that could be Buddhism Sufism uh, not I guess Sufism doesn't count sorry Buddhism Sikhism uh Jainism etc
1: and Hinduism um,
0: yeah Hinduism of course sorry that's no
1: <laughs> no, no 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 obviously but the, the in the, the way in which I often teach sort of intro, religion is they're grouped. group they're indian this is sort of an indian religious ecosystem and that's where you get this kind of ascetical you know uh, uh, uh sort of uh, do away with uh, with the vedic social structure or any social structure and kind of just turn inward and i, I think that's something that's leveraged or, or even appropriated in in these contexts for a sense of freedom so i think it very much is a, a function of what we think of as indian religion yeah for
0: sure or dharma traditions right is sometimes although that has a buddhist kind of Um, And then what I was interested to see was the ways in which, so had it just been that, then maybe uh, we could have just stayed with the frame of like uh, a Saidian Orientalism. But what was so interesting was the ways in which uh, indigenous traditions played such a very large role, as well as the turn toward these, uh, what? were conceived of as quote-unquote pre-modern uh, sensibilities and solutions to the crisis of the modern became so very important for these populations. And the ways in which they were kind of integrated together, so yoga classes wherein uh, native drums would be playing and people would be asserting kind of native um, understandings of of the environment or, uh, you know, a, a chakra healing tent or chakra as it's often called, but chakra healing tent, wherein, uh, it, it occurred in a teepee, you know, these kind of blendings of Indic and indigenous worldviews.
1: You, you know, I guess the, the, a front and center of your book, even as it's titled is the issue of whiteness. And could you please, uh, uh, there may be various, um, there may be various levels of of knowledge or interpretation or familiarity with what you mean by that or or why that's problematic among the audience. And so why is that such a central feature of your book, the issue of whiteness in these festivals?
0: I think that um, what I was struck by was that non-white ideas and cultures dominated these festival spaces, right? So the spiritual materials that were being celebrated, centralized, used, adopted, discussed, all of the above were absolutely um, at the nexus, right at the core of of many of these festivals, even in their intents and purposes on their flyer, come to a yoga festival, right? Um, But then it was striking to me the ways in which actual people of these cultures were not present hardly at all. So in some sense, whiteness became a central focus because of the absence of people who were representing cultures to which they would have personal allegiance, right? Um, And then I began to wonder why And I found one of these, one of the roots for that in this kind of mode of religious exoticism, this kind of quest for meaning in the cultures of the other. And I think there's also work that I don't represent fully because I'm not trained to do so as a psychologist, I would say, but I did hear it uh, frequently in these fields that there's a kind of inherent vacuity to whiteness or a a loss of history and heritage and meaning and roots, which sends um, many people looking for roots in other places. So I wanted to kind of validate and, and, and iterate that kind of very real quest for meaning that I think is extant in these fields, but also very much not new, right? We have this in kind of even a very old, what we might think about as like Orientalist impulse to know other cultures, to explore, to possess. And I use the, the notion of um, white possessiv- white possessivism uh, from indigenous scholar Eileen Morton Robinson um, as an interesting lens and a helpful lens to help us understand what is not necessarily in my mind any trouble with learning about other cultures, but in fact a problematic representational politics that comes from the logic of possession.
1: So I'd like to dig into this and and sort of with respect, just present this other view. Like if one were to say, look, look look guys, we live in a global village and you know, everybody likes um, hummus and samosas and soy sauce. So behold, uh, the glory of modernity. So, you know, is this not just a transmission of ideas? Is it not such that we are all citizens of the globe that can that can benefit from 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 the the practices and insights of the ancients or of other cultures? You know, uh, as I'm saying, right, this is just sort of a pedagogical tactic to 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 help us to understand your position on that and what you consider cultural appropriation and why this is important. But if one were to say that to you, um, what would you say in terms of what you're noticing at these festivals?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that, first of all, the book is not um, in any sense operating with a singular ethic, like, a, I would view that as almost like a theological, you know, a singular ethic that's trying to, like, say what's right and what's wrong and reprimanding people. I mean, I know there's a lot of work out there that is doing that kind of, um, move, and I don't necessarily have to do that because they're doing it and they're having the discourse and that's fine by me. Um, what I try to do is to show the diversity of discourse and action in these fields and to show the kind of inner conflict of, of these fields, wherein there are some people who are having that very debate inside. Um and, and, you know, sometimes some one side is making strides and sometimes the other side is making strides. And with regard to the global village and um, cosmopolitanism and shared culture, absolutely, absolutely, we should all eat sushi, we should all eat pho, we should all do yoga and we should all, you know, expand our horizons by, Contact and connection with people different from ourselves. I'm thrilled about that. I'm very excited about that kind of potentiality. And I also think it is um, impossible to stop, right, in our globalized world. That's going to happen. I mean, I'm not so far as like uh, uh, some of the utopian theorists who think that we're all going to, you know, be kind of light tan in the end and, and speak Spanish, like Starhawk's uh, vision for utopian society. But Eventually, right, our cultures will mix and that will probably create new futures. It definitely will create new futures. The difficulty that I see is that we live in a world informed by white supremacy. And so if we do nothing, that is the status quo, right? So if we are in ex- cultural exchange, and do nothing with regard to current power dynamics, current power relations, that will be the result. So we have to kind of actively change that if we are going to operate in partnership, in mutual exchange, in collaboration between ethnic groups, between racial groups. So I think that that's what I'm looking toward. I don't really have a constructivist bent for this book or, or you know, there are so many brilliant leaders in these fields who are already building their own visions of what the future should look like and what the present should look like. But if I were to have one, I do mention throughout the book, one idea that I think is um, interesting and I think potentially very useful is uh, this notion of the the politics of friendship that I draw look on the lines from Aristotle to Foucault to Derrida um, but this notion of what would it mean to operate in collaboration with those from whom we're gaining so much inspiration what would it mean to operate with the politics of friendship with a shared expression? And I think that that becomes a really critical question, particularly when you're not just eating sushi, but you're opening a sushi restaurant, right? When you're not just doing yoga and learning from a teacher, but you're in fact becoming an Instagram influencer, yogi who is developing this field. Then I think once you're occupying that space of representation, Then you really need to be considering a politics of collaboration and friendship.
1: Yeah, that's that's I think a fascinating, in my in my own view, a a nuanced or fairly balanced perspective. It's not my place to to ascertain or evaluate the ideas of anyone on this podcast, but it seems to me that it 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 resonates. uh, you know, could you say something about this um, this cathartic freedom that you talk about? I think it's a really interesting and important idea. We may have touched upon it, but but there's some, that itself. I mean, many of the ideas in this book could be its own book, right? And that and to me, the mark of a good book is that it's a beginning, right? Like it's, it's you can expand on it. But this idea of the cathartic freedom, tell us about that in your book.
0: That's Nice, because I feel like as I've been talking about this book so much in the last month or so since it came out, I haven't talked very much about that. So thanks for asking the question. Um, I found the reason that I included that chapter, it's chapter five, um, was that nearly everyone that I met in the field, and I took a ton of interviews and had years, as you said, worth of conversations, um, Expressed that this temp that the festival spaces were spaces where they felt free so far to the extent that it even became kind of like a a joke or a trope among some of the kind of more seasoned or maybe even jaded festival goers of like, oh look, I'm so free. <laughs> um, but people really did feel that way. And they expressed it in interviews again and again, this kind of freedom of. And I talk about maybe four or five different kinds of freedom in this chapter, but I think there's a freedom from judgment uh, that you've kind of left your social emplacement and you are out in the world as an a, a independent subject that no one's kind of looking at. There's also kind of a freedom from all kinds of judgments that we find in society in these spaces, whether it's Sexism, racism, or even just—you know—I'm—I'm I'm not. I don't have to be a mother this weekend, right? I don't have to be a brother. I don't have to be a worker. I don't have to be a whatever you are. Um, this is a space aside from that. And then I feel like I talk about freedom from isolation. A lot of people build community in these spaces, which is so rich and absolutely a fundamental core project of the festival. And then I talk a little bit about more what we might consider to be traditional understandings of freedom in yogic worlds. So what it would mean to have a, whether it's a freedom from samsara in this kind of uh, conventional sense or a feeling of freedom through introspection and um, quieting the mind uh, on the yoga mat and how that kind of individual freedom may actually dovetail with uh, other practices of sculpting the self that have everything to do with contemporary neoliberalism. Just, but go ahead.
1: Yeah. Yeah, sure. No, there's just so much there. And I can't the amount of anecdotes that come to my mind when I'm reading your book are just so uh, there's so many because there's so many encounters with students and, you know, practitioners and, and even, okay. In a space, in a continuing study space where I'm doing a sort of a talk on um, there's this group called discover world religions uh, that's run by someone else that I was doing a talk on, you know, an intro Hinduism talk to um, mostly retired um, uh, Westerners, right. In Toronto, in the outskirts of Toronto. And, woman came up to me after the talk. Uh, she was um, easily in her in her uh, 70s, probably 80s, and she said, <laughs> "You know, in the talk when you said when you presented the ideas that maybe we've had past lives and maybe not, who knows? It was it was so freeing. You know, maybe maybe not. You know, we don't have to believe the things they tell us to." <laughs> it was like it was just. This, this moment, right? This moment of just understanding the shackles of certain belief systems and the necessity, you know, it, it, which reminds me of another encounter when I went to Calgary to do to, to my PhD and I was staying with this lovely family and very lovely family. Uh, I was just a guest in the home and the grandmother was over one day, a Roman Catholic uh, white woman, just to give context, just saying hello. She doesn't know me from Adam. She knows I'm doing a religious studies degree. Perhaps I don't even know if that much. And in our first conversation, she looks at me and says, I hate to tell you this, but we only have one life. <laughs> I'll, never, I'll never forget that. <laughs> it was so instructive. It was just, it was powerful, right?
0: Um... <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, I mean... I love that. Honestly, I think that's the best feedback I I can get on this book is when people recognize it, Do you know, when they can read through and see it as, oh, yeah, I've seen that or, oh, yeah, I've heard that even in adjacent fields, because I think that means that I got something right, you know, or I was able to articulate something that resonated. So I'm thrilled with that. Thank you so much. It's going to send me off on a happy day to, to feel that way. Um, but I also do think that you point to something that I didn't mention, which is particularly in the, I guess, in the ways in which these are related conversations. So the spiritual but not really religious question that you gave me maybe you know 10 minutes ago is deeply related to this feeling of freedom of um, Self determination of choice, freedom from the church, freedom from dogma, freedom from childhood rules and regulations. That these, um, you know, and I, I critique in the book the ways in which India and and Indic thought becomes kind of a playground, right? But it it does in some sense when there when there is no kind of authority that is governing the person's kind of spiritual direction. Um, they can experience something that feels very much like freedom in their exploration. And, you know, we can critique, of course, the fact that there maybe should be some kind of spiritual authority that's governing or telling them directions in which way to go. I remember once I was uh, interviewing someone in the book uh, who she made it into the book, I think, um, but I was interviewing her at Bhakti Fest and we were talking about her chakra healing workshops that she was running out of Sedona. And she had a lot of kind of information in her mind and and she was using all these particular techniques. And I said at one point during the interview, uh, well, where did you gain your training, you know, to learn how to do this? And she turned to me kind of point blank and said, well, there's Google. (laughs) So, you know, of course there are moments like that. Right. And, and that's not to belittle or, or to critique everyone in these fields, but there are moments like that where we might wish that they had um, more directed uh, instruction. But of course, it is wildly freeing to operate at play in a, a field that is seemingly less restrictive than the way that you were raised if you were raised in a conservative religious background.
1: Certainly, and I think it, In my personal anecdotal experience of people, and I've had the good fortune or not of meeting a great many of them and working with a great many of them, but um, it it seems to me that many are drunk with the social freedom and it proxies for a sort of an inner mystical freedom for them. Some of them have actual mystical experiences, it seems to me, but it seems to me that they're drunk with the freedom uh, with the social freedom with with the they the, 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 the relish their individuality and sort of for them that becomes in their mind an experience of the Atman <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of the witness yeah. self and it's there's and you know it's I mean we can't there's all all kinds of shades of gray um, 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 on the one hand you know it's great to be. I mean, who wants who wants a traditional uh, figure or authority figure or someone to steal your power or to exploit you in some way? And on the other hand, wouldn't it be nice to have some rigor, to have some oversight? If you want to be a fantastic chef, you probably want to apprentice with somebody or a fantastic musician or a fantastic mechanic. Chances are good you're going to want, you're going to, want to benefit from some sort of um, support, oversight, mentorship. But I mean, we're not going to answer these questions today. But it's so fascinating to to get a peephole <laughs> into these white utopias.
0: Yeah, I think that there is um, there are some factions in these fields that I talk about in in chapter two when I focus specifically on yoga. Um, there, you do get some people who are very interested in lineage and what I call local knowledge, right? So deriving authority to their practice from whether it's Indic gurus, Indic teachers, Indic yogis, um, any kind of lineage knowledge that's going to trace authority back to India. And then on the other hand, you have the kind of much more widely pervasive universal knowledge, which is kind of saying that, well, yoga is... India's gift to the world. But now that that gift has been given, everyone should experience it. And it is, its authority is located in my personal experience. So if I feel it, if I experienced it, then it's true for me. This very highly relativistic understanding of truth and authority, which is highly contra to the kind of traditional Indic or guru model that you're referencing.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. Speaking of yoga, we're going to have a chance to, uh, to, to feature your work. Um, 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 I hear this chap named Raj Balkman is organizing this, um, what am I doing? An online weekend school, that's right, at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, I believe, uh, December the 12th? No, 6th. Fifth, sixth, something, yeah. Fifth, sixth. You see, you see, see how prepared I am for this. Fifth, sixth. Um, um, um. Uh, Dr. Amanda Lucia will be one of um, ten speakers presenting uh, brand new research in the field of yoga studies. You will be there, won't you? Yes,
0: sir. yes, sir. Very excited. And you're juggling many hats, so we're we're thrilled to. I'm thrilled to be there.
1: Well, uh, having no hair, it's easy to switch from hat to hat. With any. <laughs> so why I shave my head, it just makes a smoother transition. But um, uh, Dr. Lucia is actually uh, closing our festival, our academic festival. She'll be uh, the final speaker at, um, um, I believe, 5 p.m. GMT on this Sunday. So you'll have to do the math because I can't do math. That's why I study the humanities, but she'll be ending it on Sunday. Um, org. If you want to come to her talk or any of the others, you're most welcome to come. Um, and speaking of yoga, now at the, at the outset of this call, you know, usually I, I chat with the with the interviewees uh, for a couple of minutes before I uh, hit record, just so they can make sure I'm not going to grill them like a, you know, this isn't the Q and A of an academic conference, you know. Um, uh, and uh, she mentioned that she was, uh, she was, and um, uh, she was in between podcasts. She's about to start mine, and she just finished one. So, which one did you just finish? Who, who, who were you interviewed by before me?
0: Uh, it was Seth Powell, and I believe it's
1: Yoga Studies. Yoga Studies. But, yeah. yeah fantastic yeah it's it's really really my hat goes off to seth uh, really and truly i really feel that he is our future what i'm doing what he's doing this is the future of our discipline and my suspicion is that this is the future of the humanities and the ivory tower will be transformed into silo network siloed scholars within a century or two uh but that's that's for some futuristic novel that i haven't written yet um, 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 um but uh I had Seth on this podcast and he's had me on his and the synergy was so great. He's, he had asked me to do a course for them. So I just, I'm in the process of, of issuing a, a yoga and Hindu mythology course, Yogic studies. And uh, really that's, it's abundantly clear to me that people like Seth, um, people like, um, well, there's a number of them They're This is what we need to be doing, especially for grad students who want to know how they can do what they're born to do or here to do, uh, but for whom there just may not be an academic job uh, given the transformations of the academy. And, and that's really sort of why I really, really like what he's doing because he's finishing his PhD, but whether he gets an academic job or not, he'll be able to self-fund his research and do what he's here to do through this. And at the same time, um, impact so many learners who, who they want quality uh, knowledge, right? They want somebody well-trained. You know, they're, they're paying for education anyways. Why not by someone who's who's been trained at the academy? Anyhow, this is not by any stretch of the imagination a paid promotion. I'm just trying to share uh, that unplanned, we have this kind of circuit of, of people that are branching out more into the, 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 the public eye, whether they're established academics or not. And and I'd love your perspective on that, because you obviously have a very different vocational standing than I do, but yet we seem to be hobnobbing online here and there more and more. So could you tell me what you think of this?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I wanted not to draw it back to the book, but I want to say that also I was so deeply moved by how much these festival spaces were educational spaces and how deep the hunger for learning actually is. And in some ways, that is what cultivated my uh, respect for so many of these participants who are often discredited in the scholarly field as kind of like superficial or silly or consumeristic or capitalistic. Um, in a lot of different ways was to know that these are learners. And it really made me think about um, my own students at UCR that if someone is actually learning, they may not get it all right and and you know me issuing kind of a blanket critique of like you're doing it wrong or you're, you're you're not you know thinking clearly is is maybe unhelpful. and so how we could actually I mean not to be too like I don't mean to be pejorative in any sense but like how to cultivate knowledge um, in spaces that are, helpful and interesting and representative and truthful. And I think that um, in any kind of representational space, it's always important to keep that in mind, even whether I'm looking at my own Hindu syllabus, who am I citing, right? In academic citational politics, who am I bringing into the conversation? Um, So I do think that, you know, with regard to these projects that you and Seth have so effectively and, and brilliantly championed and also the budget meetings that I'm in, in the kind of institutional academic industrial complexes as, as some people would call it. Um, I think that things are shifting um, and certainly with COVID it's not helping. Um, and so you may have something there to your vision for what your own kind of future and all of our own futures might look like. Um, I hope that, I think my my only concern, I have many concerns, but my hope is that we will continue to live in a world where words, discourses, education, facts, intellectuals matter, um, that we don't kind of, lose that with the deconstruction of the academy. um, Because I think that that understanding history, and again, that's something what I'm trying to do with the book is understanding these kind of theoretical frames and understanding historical frames helps us to see our present. And if we are not cognizant of that, or uneducated of that, or we kind of dissolve into this kind of Experiential relativism of the individual in in neoliberal society, then we might lose um, some of that context that will help give us direction toward the future. But I think the the modes for that can be multiple.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's crucial. Um, um, I'm sort of an odd mix, I think, of traditional, innovative, but I think it's true. It's crucial that the 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 parampara, academic or otherwise, be valued. Uh, and that we have sort of um, uh, uh, um, a cogent method or, 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 or proper instruction or training so that our knowledge production can be, you know, top-notch and not just willy-nilly. I don't think that should go anywhere. Uh, my sense is that um, while those being the training aspect of the academy, uh, you know, I think will always be needed, you um, the people trained by the academy uh, how they leverage their expertise and who they teach i think will shift yeah. and i think that could only help if the public has the opportunity to have podcasts and youtube channels and courses that are accessible to them outside of a degree by people who are well trained right it yeah. has to be some kind of it's what you talk about is is obviously a, a a serious pitfall that we need to avoid. We need that quality of training. But where the job zone exists doesn't mean that these trainees um, can't be productive and 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 only ameliorate the, the interested public's consciousness in these very ideas and traditions what do I know? You know, I barely know what I'm doing from hour to hour. I'm gonna stop pontificating it with my vision for the future. I'm just really glad that, you know, I, was, I sort of felt like I was alone in the wilderness for the last five years and all of a sudden I'm saying, oh, there are other people out here in, the, in sort of um, um, academic online education for lack of a better term.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. And I also think that as academics, we need to keep writing books like I've tried to do, which is kind of a, not a crossover book fully, Um, you know, but I I do think that interested readers can get through this book. It's not intended to be so jargonified that only specialists can read it. You know, I hope it'll be used in classrooms and I hope interested parties will read it. I hope dedicated yogis will read it. I hope that, you know, everyday folks can gain something from it um, and not only kind of academic elites.
1: They most certainly can. It's it's very accessible and it's 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 pertaining to the direct experience of many individuals, which wouldn't necessarily be the case for a if I wrote something on the Devi Mahatmya or or what have you. Uh, you know, you know, I have the I have I'm able to write in an accessible style for sure, but the the material itself, coupled with the style, makes it a very accessible read that I think many of our listeners will enjoy. Um, will enjoy having a look at. So anything else about the book or the podcast or life in general, or, you know, that you'd like to touch on <laughs> um, before we, we, we close uh, since we've taken a fair bit of your time for one day.
0: I should probably close on the book, even though I do appreciate uh, all the hard work that you're doing on this podcast. As I was just saying before, Uh, I came on, I had a student uh, randomly ask me uh, who is this guy and, and should I take his course? And I said, absolutely. You know, uh, this is a a wonderful opportunity above and beyond and in bridging between the Academy and, and, and the world. So um, I appreciate what you're doing. And I think that there's a lot of space for growth in this area for sure. And I guess closing on the book, I, um, I wanted to make an intervention in scholarship, which I felt like was n- either not paying attention to the demographics of these spaces of spiritual, but not religious communities of yoga communities of transformational festival communities, and just kind of assuming white normativity. And then also on the flip side, the, the scholarship that was out there heavily critiquing these communities as kind of superficial nonsense Um, and to walk a line in the middle somewhere that said, actually, there's a lot of earnest, devoted, empathic, knowledge hungry people in these fields and simultaneously there's a really fraught representational politics in which these fields are not acting in partnership and solidarity with South Asian peoples or the peoples whose cultures um, they're so deeply interested in, whether that's native peoples or indigenous peoples around the world. And so to kind of juxtapose that really uncomfortable space and and walk that line, um, trying to give voice to, I think what is a, a both and or conflictual environment and and so that's what I've tried to do by giving a lot of polyvocalic data and and I hope that it that it is it resonates I hope that people can read themselves in the book and and um, see see in ways they may have not seen previously the flip side of whatever their current perspective is
1: I really like that. I really like that. I'm currently teaching undergraduates at the University of Calgary, just a one course, um, and I, I we adopt the strategy of okay, let's talk about it from Billy the Believer's perspective, and now let's talk about it from Debbie the Doubter's perspective. We can change the names, but the, you know, I'm sort of hooked on alliteration for whatever reason. Um, 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 and 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 this is what I say. You know, we talk about death in the afterlife, or near death experiences, or past life memories, or it's it's an afterlife course, or, or various experiences like. If your innate temperament is to be cynical, you know, uh, that's easy, right? There's an awful lot of data here that you can't completely dismiss out of hand. And if your temperament is, uh, everything's real, you know, unicorns are real and fairies are real and and, and psychic mediums are real, that's the other extreme. And part of what's so um, refreshing is that you're obviously um, leveling a really important critique of these spaces without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And that's a difficult space. That both-and space is the space of Hinduism. It is the space of life. It's messy. It's a very easy, much easier to defend either of the extremes, but to say, hey, this is really problematic and fantastic all at the same time. That's not an easy space to be in. Yeah. But I think it's a space that that well accords with the dichotomies of life. And um, it's that, that very principle is why Hinduism is so difficult to teach and understand. And yet it's so appealing to a variety of people in a variety of ways, not least of which the spiritual but not religious folks who end up at, in these white utopias. Anyhow, enough from you one day. I
0: love it. Brilliant. I'll I'll let you finish that. That was
1: perfect. All right. So uh, for those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Amanda Lucia, who is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of California, Riverside, on her fantastic brand new publication, What Utopia is the Religious Exoticism of Transformational Festivals. Um, Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast.
0: Thanks so much, Raj. I really appreciate it. See you soon.
1: Great. Until next time, uh, stay safe, keep listening, uh, keep reading, and uh, keep contemplating what utopia is. Take care.